0: I uh, have never served in the military, um, but I know a lot of men who have, and those who've been in combat will tell you it's not like the movies, which shouldn't surprise you. In any war movie, and I I like good war movies, you can always tell what's going on, who's winning, what the objective is, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. People who've been in actual combat will tell you it's not like that. You don't know what's going on. There's noise. There's fright. There's movement. There's flashes. Uh, bullets are flying, and bombs are going off. You you see friends falling. You might even be wounded. In the fog of war, as they call it, it's almost impossible to know who's winning. Your whole your whole objective at that point is just to survive. And and in that moment, I would think it would be tempting to think. I think we're losing. I think we're losing this battle, even if it's not true. And if you think about the story of Jesus, and we've been talking about this last last few hours of his earthly life before he goes to the cross, and then we'll get into what happened afterwards soon, but we're getting to the point in the story where if you were with Jesus and you saw what happened in the garden and saw what happened immediately afterwards, you would think, we're losing The darkness is winning. Satan must be rejoicing. The enemies of the kingdom of God are going to win and we are going to lose. You and I know differently because we live on the other side of that story, but it's helpful for us to put ourselves in that moment so so that these stories can mean more to us, to try to understand what it was like to be there for those disciples. And Here's another point. In some ways, we can feel that way as Christians in America today. We face a couple of different forces. We face the opposition of this world, and we face our own failures. And we'll talk more about both of those in a little while. But both of those, our failures and the opposition of the world, make it seem like we're losing the fight. We'll come back to that at the end. But with that in mind, let's start with verse 12 of John 18. So last week we saw Jesus go to the garden and then confront his accusers, essentially. Confront the mob that came to arrest him. Peter uh, tries to fight back, cuts off the ear of Malchus, uh, the, the slave of the high priest, and Jesus rebukes Peter, heals the man, and his disciples all run away into the darkness. So we pick it up there, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So right now I need to just break in and just tell you a little bit about the whole political situation in Israel because it is confusing. It's so different than what we have here. It's not simple. So let me see if I can make it as simple as possible. The simplest way to explain it is when Herod the Great, you know, the king who tried to kill baby Jesus, when he was king, Israel was what you would call a client kingdom, which meant that Herod was able to rule like a king. He was able to do whatever he wanted to do. He had, he had governance, sovereignty over the whole nation of Israel. The only pr- difference between him and someone like David is that he answered to the Romans. So he could do whatever he wanted as long as he didn't run afoul of them. He had to pay them taxes and tribute, and he had to make sure that nothing he did contradicted something they were trying to do. So even though Herod was a terrible person and his people hated him for good reason, relatively speaking, things were good for the Israelites at that time. After Herod died, things got more complicated because the intention was that his son Archelaus, his oldest son, would rule in his place well, the Romans quickly realized he wasn't capable of that, that he was not competent, they didn't trust him, and so they got rid of him. Archelaus was sent into exile, and he died there some years later. Instead, they partitioned Israel up into different provinces, and they appointed different people to rule under the Roman governance. So, for instance, in Galilee, where Jesus grew up and did most of his ministry, the the governor, the ruler, was one of Herod's sons, Antipas, Herod Antipas. In Judea, where Jerusalem is, the ruler was a Roman procurator or governor. By the time of Jesus and his ministry, uh, it was Pontius Pilate. But it was a whole series down through the years. In Jesus' own lifetime, there were two or three, and there would be many more after Pilate was done. Now, Israel had a sort of freedom of religion. For all the things you can say against the Romans, and there are many, they were enlightened in the fact that they wanted to let people do their own thing whenever possible. And Herod had managed to convince the Romans during his time, just leave my people alone, they'll be fine. So the Jews were able to worship their God. They weren't forced to worship the Roman gods. They weren't even forced to worship Caesar which most other people groups around the empire were. If you lived most other places in the Roman Empire, once a year at least you had to go to the temple of whatever that Roman emperor's name was and you had to burn a sacrifice in his name. The, the Jews weren't required to do that as long as the priests promised they would pray for, the, for Caesar and offer a sacrifice for him. So it was like Rome said, we'll recognize your God as long as that God is on our side. All right, But... The Romans said, we get to choose who the high priest is, which went against the law of God. The law of God said it was to be a son of Aaron, a descendant of Aaron. The Romans said, forget that, we'll choose him. And uh, Jews were not allowed to execute criminals, officially. It still went on. We see... Stephen gets stoned to death in the book of Acts, but those were the kinds of things that were like, we we lost our temper, we killed this guy, we hope the Romans don't find out, and usually they never did. So that explains a few things for you. By the way, one more thing: the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate at this time, didn't live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was way too Jewish for any of the Romans to, to live there by choice. Uh, Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea, which was a city Herod had built on the coast. It's much prettier out there, it's, and it was built as a Roman city. It had all the things that Romans expected, like bathhouses and stadiums and, and theaters and temples. So Pilate lived out there, but at times of when there could be public trouble, like Passover, he and his a detachment of troops would come to Jerusalem just to keep the peace all right now it mentions in uh, in verse 12 or verse 13 that after they arrested Jesus they led him first to Annas. This is the only one of the four gospels that mentions this now like a lot of things I said this last week, like a lot of things in John, especially in the crucifixion story, John takes his own, uh, path. He, he reports details the other three don't report, and he ignores some things the other three do report. Why? He's not contradicting them. He's filling in the gaps. It's 25, 30 years later after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all been published and, and circulated. I say published. They didn't have printing presses, but you know what I mean. So John has had time to read over it several times and, and come to the conclusion, okay, here's some things that need to be said that the other three didn't say. And this is one of them. So before Jesus goes to Caiaphas, He first goes to Annas. Who is Annas? Annas was the high priest when Jesus was a kid, but he was deposed. Again, the Romans are meddling in stuff they know nothing about. High priests were supposed to serve for life. The Romans said, well, we get to choose them and we get to fire them. And Annas fell afoul of whoever was the Roman governor at the time in Judea and he was deposed. But Annas was a crafty man. He was, as I said last week, he was sort of like the the godfather of the Jews. He he had his fingers in a lot of pies. He managed to exert his power. And so in the course of his life, four of his sons and one of his sons-in-law served as high priest because he knew how to pay the right people off, how to dangle the carrot and wield the stick and whatever he had to do to get that power. By the way, just as a side note, some people believe the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. You know that, that parable that Jesus tells where uh, Lazarus, this this beggar, and a, and a rich man both die. And Lazarus goes to heaven, or Abraham's side, and the, the rich man goes to hell. And the rich man looks up, and he can see into heaven, and he says, Oh, Abraham, please send Lazarus to come dip his finger in the water and, and cool my tongue. And And Abraham says, Well, that's... Totally against policy. That's not what he says, but you know what I mean. Can't be done. Sorry. And the rich man says, Well then I have these five brothers. Will you go and and tell them that that this is that this place is down here uh, so that they will avoid it, so they won't come back. Actually it says four brothers, so they won't come here like I do. Go warn them. And Abraham says they have the law and the prophets. That's enough. And he said, No, but but if they if someone comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. He says, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Now, don't say say that I told you this is what it means. I'm just telling you some people have this theory, and I find it intriguing. They point out that Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, had four brothers-in-law. And they think that parable is sort of a dig at him. That, yeah, he has these four brothers. They don't believe that I'm the Messiah. He doesn't believe I'm the Messiah. Even after I come back from the dead, they still won't believe. I just find that an interesting theory. All right, back to John. John 18. So Annas was high priest when Jesus was a boy, deposed. Now Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is the high priest. And of all the family of Annas, he's the one that served the longest, 18 years. He's been on the throne for a long time. But because Annas is the one who's the real power behind the throne, he gets first crack at Jesus. Verse uh, 14, by the way, when, when it says uh, in verse 14 that Caiaphas is the one that, that advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for his people, that story is found in John eleven forty nine 49 through 51. I put this in your notes. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. I find that fascinating on a couple of levels. First of all, Caiaphas was trying to prophesy. He was trying to assert his spiritual authority, even though he got his position by political means, right? He's trying to show, I'm a spiritual man, I am prophesying, this man is gonna die so that the nation will not be destroyed. And he had the capacity to bring that about as high priest. He didn't realize how right he was, but not in the way he thought. Yes, Jesus would die for the whole nation and the whole world, but not in the way Caiaphas thought. The other thing I want to point out is, why does John remind us? Oh yeah, remember Caiaphas? Remember what he said back in chapter 11? He's bringing that up to remind us so that we know this trial that's about to take place is a show trial. The outcome is already determined. Caiaphas has already said months before this man is going to die. Any judge in our legal system would be recused from the case in something like this if he said before he ever heard evidence well that man needs to go to the uh, go to go to the uh, you know the, the execution chamber needs to go to the I almost said electric chair but you know what i mean you wouldn't let a, a defendant stand before him, and, and that's the case here he's already made up his mind all right so verse 15 Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So there are two narratives going on. John is really skillful. Uh, This wasn't the way ancient people tended to write, but he's weaving two narratives together, the story of Jesus' trial and the story of Peter's three denials of Christ. Now, there's several details in the passage we just read I need to point out. First of all, uh, it might surprise you that, oh, by the way, This other disciple who never gets named, we're almost positive that's John, because he's the only one that never gets named in the book, and he's the author. So he's too humble to mention his name. He just says, the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. It may surprise you that one of Jesus' disciples, John, was known to the high priest. I mean, didn't they operate in totally different worlds, totally different classes? Yes. But something I've come to understand real, uh, recently, and maybe you need to hear this too, we think of Jesus' disciples as all being peasants, as all being very, very poor. And probably by modern American standards they were, but by the standards of, their, of the standards of their time, some of them at least were solidly middle class. I mean, Matthew was wealthy as a tax collector. But John and James and Peter and Andrew were businessmen. John and James worked for their father's fishing company, which could have been called Zebedee and Sons. We know that he had employees other than his sons. So this was not an impoverished family. Besides that, Israel is a very small country. I mean, it's about the size of of New Jersey with a, a lot fewer people. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are connections where you and I can't figure out how that happened. All right, so the priest, high priest knew John. John walks up to the gate, says, hey, I'm Caiaphas' cousins, brothers, whatever. And the person at the gate says, you may go in. And Peter goes in with him. The other thing I want to point out is the first confrontation Peter gets is the servant girl at the door, at the courthouse of this house. By the way, I need to also point out, when it says that he went to Annas and then later to Caiaphas, the two houses were probably part of the same complex, may have even been the same house. This was a big place. Uh, So there's this big courtyard. She lets them in, and then she looks at Peter and says, Hey, but notice how she asks the question. You weren't one of his disciples, were you? Which you would think would make it easy for him to say, nah. But the Greek that John uses when he reports this is emphatic. We see it in English as, I am not. But Greek scholars, of whom I'll admit I'm not one, look at this and says, it's more like, uh, well, no, well, of course not. Why would you say that? You know, kind of suspicious. Very emphatic. Now, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So why is Annas called the high priest? Well, he's called the high priest, even though he's not the current one. In the same way, we call former presidents Mr. President. That's not surprising. Also, probably the Jews knew, you know, the Romans didn't have authority to depose you. In my eyes, you'll always be high priest. So there's some of that going on too. But notice the questions of the old man for Jesus. On the the one hand, his questions come down to, how many followers do you have, and what have you been teaching them? Those are questions designed to find evidence that Jesus was plotting a rebellion against Rome. See, what the Sanhedrin had against Jesus was enough in their eyes to put him to death, but they knew there was no way it was enough to convince the Romans. The Romans, for all their flaws, were a law and order people. They were not going to execute a man just because he was unpopular. They needed some real evidence. They needed a real charge. Blasphemy against the God of Israel was not going to be good enough. Pretending to be the Messiah, pretending to fulfill Scripture uh, was not going to be good enough. They needed to believe that Jesus was dangerous to the empire. And so that's why Annas is asking the questions he's asking. Something you've learned if you've watched, if you've read any of what we call true crime or, or listened to true crime podcasts, you've learned that If you interrogate someone long enough and harshly enough, they'll they'll confess to anything. People will break down over time. And just to get you off their backs, they'll say, yeah, I did it. Let me sign the paper. I murdered all those people. Even if they didn't, it's been shown. Annas is trying to bully Jesus into saying, yes, yes, I was leading a rebellion. You got me. So that he can be put to death by the Romans. But Jesus will not bite. In fact, his response shows that not only is he not intimidated, he questions Annas' authority by saying, his his response when you look at it, he he says, why are you asking me? All these other people heard me. Where are they? You know what he's really asking? Where are the witnesses? If I've done something wrong, where are the witnesses? You're not you're not conducting a legitimate trial. Where where is anybody who knows That I said, or who can claim that I said any of the things that you're accusing me of? And of course, Annas had nothing. And then, when this guy slaps him, by the way, that's always a sign that you've got nothing when you've got to resort to violence. Jesus, instead of getting scared, instead of getting angry, he says, What wrong have I done? What did I do that was against the law? What have I done? What have I said that was disrespectful? Point it out to me, and then you can slap me again. Jesus is absolutely right. The thing that is happening right now is a violation, not just of of human rights. This is a violation of Jewish law itself. If you go back and not that I've read the Talmud, but I've seen passages from it that apply to this. The Talmud that the Jews used to govern themselves was explicit. Their their judicial system was fair. But there's no system that can guard against someone who has enough power taking matters into their own hands. And that's what this small group of high priests had chosen to do. Now, uh, verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Again, kind of a negative, negatively phrased question. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So you can kind of see in the way John tells the story how it escalates. At first, it's just this random servant girl who says, you're not one of them, are you? Then it's they. Who are they? Probably the people who arrested Jesus. And some of them are going, you know, he looks familiar. Maybe you're not him. You're not one of those guys, were you? I mean, they're probably thinking to themselves, surely one of those people, one of those men in the garden who ran away like cowards, surely they wouldn't show up here. But then the third person who asks, not only was there. But is related to the man who Peter attacked, Malchus. So you see how it escalates. You see how for Peter, his anxiety, if if that first question made him answer emphatically, how emphatic was that third response? No, not me. In fact, one of the other gospels says he called down curses upon himself. May I, you know, may an elephant squat on my head or whatever, if I if I'm lying. It says. At once, a rooster crowed. Now, this means means nothing definite, but the Romans had a way of telling time that said, cock crow was 3 a.m. That doesn't mean the roosters obeyed, but that was a way the Romans kept time. Rooster would crow, oh, okay, it's 3 in the morning. So that kind of tells you roughly what time this happened. This is what we call the middle of the night, the small hours and for peter to collapse so quickly after all his bravado after all his all his self-justification and self-righteousness had to be devastating had to have hurt him deeply so let's go back a little bit let's talk about where we fit into all of this how this applies to our current situation. Because as I said at the beginning, like the men who follow Jesus, right now it's easy for us as American Christians to feel like we're losing the battle. What, what are the parallels? Well, we face the opposition of this world. We always have, but it's gotten worse. I want to read you some, uh, some statistics. This is from an article called, The Ten Worst Countries in the World to Be a Christian. Okay? Uh, this is This is from an organization called World Watch, a Christian organization that monitors these kinds of things. I just want to read you not all 10, but just a few of them. Number one, the worst place in the world to be a Christian today is Afghanistan. It says, "...the Taliban will make sure that Islamic rules and customs are implemented and kept. Christian converts don't have any option but to obey them. If a Christian's new faith is discovered, their family, clan, or tribe has to save its honor by disowning the believer or even killing them. This is widely considered to be justice." Alternatively, since leaving Islam is considered a sign of insanity, a Christian who has converted from Islam may be forcibly sent to a psychiatric hospital. Number two is North Korea. It says, any North Korean caught following Jesus is at, is at immediate risk of imprisonment, brutal torture, and death. They do have essentially concentration camps in North Korea where they send Christians and others who fall afoul of of their way of thinking. Number three is Somalia. Number four, Libya. Number five, Yemen. Number six, Eritrea. And number seven is Nigeria. Keep in mind, this is number seven. There are six worse than this, but it says persecution in Nigeria is simply put brutally violent. In much of northern Nigeria, Christians live their lives under the constant threat of attack from Boko Haram, the Islamic State, West Africa province, Fulani militants and criminals who kidnap and murder with few consequences. The violence is so bad, it has begun to travel south as well. I read in another source today that 8,000 Christians just this last year were either killed or kidnapped in Nigeria. Nigeria. And then eight is pakistan nine is Iran, and ten is India. The interesting thing about India is India is a mostly Hindu nation. You would think that Hinduism that has hundreds of gods wouldn't have a problem with one more, but it says, "...the persecution of Christians in India has intensified as Hindu extremists aim to cleanse the country of their presence and influence. The extremists disregard Indian Christians and other religious minorities. They're not true Indians in their minds. They think the country should be purified of non-Hindus. This has led to a systemic and often violent targeting of Christians and other religious minorities, including the use of social media to spread disinformation and stir up hatred. I have a cousin who spent a year in India as a short-term missionary, and this was a few years ago. She told us, listen, pray for me, but don't post anything on Facebook or anywhere else saying pray for my relative uh, in India, because if they know I'm there, I could be in trouble. So... I say all that to say there are places where it is literally life-threatening to be a believer. And even in nations where there's freedom from persecution, think about Europe today, there's increasing sense that Christians are marginalized. Uh, During my sabbatical, we hope to go to England and visit with a couple of Christian churches that we met with four years ago on a mission trip, and I can tell you, I mean, England... There's no other country we owe our faith in America to more than England, and yet their Christians, church-going believers, are very much the minority, and they feel like increasingly like outcasts from culture. Even in the U.S., we see our enemies getting bolder and more mocking. Let me let me just make it clear: I'm not worried about our religious freedom. I think our religious freedom is. Is stronger than it's ever been. I'm not worried that I'm going to be arrested for preaching or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I just mean the people who oppose us. When I was a kid, and I'm not that old. I'm older than I think I am, but I'm not that old. I remember atheists and other unbelievers, they just wanted tolerance. They just wanted to be able to uh, be an unbeliever without being pressured, right? The script has flipped, and now they are the ones dictating and the irony is they're far less tolerant than they ever accused us of being intolerant. So on this day in Jesus' life, think about the fact that Jesus' enemies were able to get everything they wanted. Caiaphas' plan went perfectly. You know, we'll get to the rest of that later. But you know this. Everything he wanted happened. Jesus was not only arrested without incident, uh, he was condemned by the Sanhedrin, he was condemned by the mob of people outside Pilate's palace, he was condemned by Pilate, and therefore officially by Rome, and he died. They got everything they wanted. But does that mean our side lost? Hardly. Keep that in mind, okay? When it looks like the other side is winning, that doesn't mean the other side is winning. Number two, we get discouraged not only about that, but about the failures of God's people. We see churches declining and some of them closing. Some of you perhaps grew up in a church that you look back to now and it, it may no longer exist, or maybe it's just barely hanging on. That is an increasingly common story, and it's heartbreaking. Denominations are struggling. The old mainland denominations are barely hanging on, and even once very recently strong denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention that we're a part of, we see lots of, th- of signs of concern. And then there's story after story after story after story of leaders stumbling, leaders being exposed as wolves in sheep's clothing, or leaders making mistakes and losing their ministry. And all of this can be so very discouraging. We just feel like as, as an, if we're an army, if we're the army of God, we, sometimes we seem like the worst army on earth, right? We just can't get out of our own way. Think about Peter and how his pride and his self-righteousness led him to a ridiculous fall. When Jesus told him in the upper room, I am praying for you, Peter. Satan has asked permission to sift you as wheat. Peter should have said, Lord, I need your prayers because I know I'm a weak man. But instead, what did he say? Man, if, even if everybody else runs away from you, I will never leave you. And yet, what happened? Is this the end of Peter after this? After he denies Jesus the third time? After everything he promised wouldn't happen actually happens? Is that the end of Peter? If a Hollywood screenwriter was writing this, that's the way it would go. But no, not Hardly. Peter goes on to be the leader of the early church. He goes on a few, weeks, a few weeks from this moment and preaches a sermon and 3,000 people get saved. Any preacher on earth would, would love to have that kind of result. So, so here's what I want to say. God doesn't promise that His people will always succeed. There's no guarantee that First Baptist Conroe is going to grow numerically We may stay at the level we're at numerically. We may dip. We may grow. There's no promise of that. There's no promise that our nation's best spiritual days will come back, that we'll see a revival. I'm praying for it. I hope you are too. There's no guarantee it's going to happen. You know what we are promised? Jesus wins in the end. That's it. And that doesn't mean we always get what we want. That doesn't mean we always feel like we're winning, but we know He wins. So that leads us to say, Keep that in mind when you think about that first point about the opposition of this world. Be humble. Be humble. Yes, Jesus wins. Yes, his enemies face judgment. But it's not because of anything we do. It's not because we're better than them. We don't get to crow. He gets the glory. We do not. Not only does God win in the end, this is the best part, the story of Good Friday is he doesn't just win, he repurposes the failures of his people, and the worst of the opposition of the enemy, so that he can achieve an even greater victory. Because Peter denied Christ, Jesus was able to restore him and show his grace. Because the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus, he was able to take that and, and, and forgive them as he died on the cross. They got everything they wanted. It turned out to be our redemption and his glory. So don't despair, Jesus wins. That is the guarantee. His love wins. His grace overcomes. His justice conquers evil. That we can be sure of. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these assurances. We do get discouraged sometimes. We look at earthly things and, Lord, we can't really see what you're doing. But we ought to know by now, we have enough evidence from the past that you always win in the end. You cannot be stopped. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your power. And we pray, O Lord, that we would communicate this story to those who need to hear it. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.